mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, and welcome to another episode of Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue, and I'm an author, a journalist, and an aging vaudeville star. Joining me is Karen Tongson, author, podcaster, and winner of the Best Supporting Actress Award for her role in the film Gandhi. Hi, Karen. <laughs> Hello. Hi, so great to have you here. So today we're talking about Candice Bergen's memoir, Knockwood. Mm-hmm. What made you choose this book? It's such an interesting choice. Well, you know, the thing is, I haven't had a lot of time for recreational reading in a long time because most of the reading I have to do is professional. I'm a college professor, and so I have to keep up with the literature, but I don't sure. get to read contemporary literature or, and you know, stuff for fun very much. And the th- stuff that I love to devour, and I suppose you could call it a guilty pleasure, though guilty pleasures aren't really my thing. I feel like mm-hmm. all pleasures should be guiltless. Mm-hmm. But I used to read a lot of celebrity biographies whenever right. I had a moment. And Candace Bergen's Knockwood was a formative one for me when I was growing up. I remember stumbling upon it. And, you know, it, it had so many different resonances for me. And it, at the same time, it's not like a book that you'd readily admit was like a kind of touchstone text mm. for you, right? Mm. So when thinking about stuff that, I don't know, uh, triggered some form of sentimentality in oneself, even yeah. if the book itself is not sentimental. I had to go to this. Yeah, and um, Candice Bergen, it's interesting because um, over on this side of, of the Atlantic, uh, she is someone who, when you said, I was like, oh, that lady from Miss Congeniality. And she, <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm sorry. And, and she played... Um, uh, Edna in Sex and the City. She was the Vogue editor and she made s- several iconic appearances in that show. But um, Murphy Brown, both both generationally and just geographically, doesn't really resonate for me as a reference. Mm. Um, and I, So I kind of was like, oh, this sort of actress, <laughs> I, I guess. And she then may I'm, be a character actress of <laughs> yeah, some Yeah, I seem like, yeah, like aging character actress who plays impressive women on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read this book and I was like, oh my God, she's the linchpin holding all of Hollywood together. Yeah, she's even linked to the <laughs> The Manson family. She's she is basically really. I mean, this is kind of the summer. I, I picked up a magazine the other day that called this the summer of Charles Manson. Oh wow. yes, it is <laughs> because there's a couple things coming out. Yeah. But it was like that's a weird way to pitch that. It's yeah. I mean, it's so funny. My friend uh, Guinevere Turner's film Charlie Says yes just came out, um, and you know. It's like rereading this book, I hope I'm not jumping the gun by saying, you know, like and getting the parts where she's dating Terry Melcher in that same moment in the late 60s. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, oh, yeah, she's right. connected to this, the summer of Charlie Manson. And she is, she's sort of a an alternative timeline Sharon Tate in a way. Mm-hmm. Because she the exact same. The sliding doors Sharon Tate. She is the sliding doors Sharon Tate. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. I mean, so we'll, we'll get to that. But first, I'm going to do a very quick summary of sure. the book itself. Um, and then we'll get right into it. 
So uh, Candice Bergen's memoir is the story of her childhood in Hollywood as the daughter of Edgar Bergen, an aging vaudevillian who became famous for his ventriloquism on TV and radio. It's kind of like he was the the world's most famous ventriloquist back when that meant something. And on the radio, which you're like, isn't the point of ventriloquism (laughs) that that you, you know, it's the the kind of ruse of not seeing your lips move. Exactly. And like there's a a great bit as well where she's like talking to some English aristocrats who she's trying to get in with about Mm. what her father does like yeah he talks to um dolls on the radio (laughs) (laughs) yeah Candy's book details her childhood right up until her father's death, detailing the 60s and 70s in Hollywood, the women's movement, free love, the movie business, all while her status as a sex symbol, it girl and actress rise her through the ranks of Hollywood society. And that's kind of it. It's very much a kind of Bildung's roman, really. We start with her in this iconic first chapter, which I think is just a masterclass in writing and really proves from the get-go that like this isn't just an actress who's hired a ghostwriter and is telling a kind of a soapy, gossipy memoir about who's who in Hollywood this is like a writer and a creative person I was wondering if you'd like to um, read the opening page is that something you're comfortable with oh sure absolutely I mean her writerliness is the thing that really drew me to it and it's why I always recommend yeah. this book to people actually um, and so the opening page of the prologue yes okay we are gathered here today to say farewell to our little turtle Toby who is now departed he was a brave good little turtle and he died how did he die Candy A pause. He was supposed to get food once a week, and he didn't get it at all. I see. He died because you forgot to feed him, and so he's gone to turtle heaven. We will say a prayer for him today. Candy? Dear God, please bless my turtle, Toby, and keep him safe, and please forgive me for not feeding him. Amen. It is the morning of the turtle funeral. I am six. We are standing in the rose garden. A light rain is falling day is pale and gray. My mother, eyes respectfully downcast, is wrapped in a trench coat and carries a calla lily. I wear a hat, veil, and shawl over jeans and sneakers and carry a toffee tin containing the deceased. Dina, my governess, wears a coat (laughs) over her uniform and clusters with K, the cook. Ooh, that's a nice little alliterative spot there. And clusters with K, the cook, who holds an umbrella. Mickey the gardener, his head bowed, stands silently by with a tiny hoe and shovel to break the earth. There is a man shooting 16 millimeter sound and other shooting stills. They are filming my father, splendid and somber, in top hat and overcoat, who holds the Northeastern telephone directory from which he pretends to read the eulogy. I think it's a great place to stop and yeah. a great a great taster for the bizarreness of this woman's childhood. Yeah. So this this opening prologue, it begins with her turtle funeral, which is revealed then. And then it, I think that um, story ends with, and the pictures ran in the post the next morning. Yeah. And then that prologue ends with her attending her own father's funeral 30 years later. And yeah. the pictures ran in the post the next morning. Yeah, the Saturday Evening Post. So it's not even just like any newspaper. It's like the emblematic magazine of Americana, right? Norman Rockwell used to create the illustrations for it, you know? Wow. And so it's just sort of like, uh, yes, she comes from this bizarre background, but she establishes herself early on as just like, she's practically a royal, right? You know, like nice. where the minute you burp or named or shoved into a, a car, into a car seat, like you have... 
paparazzi following you and it's just sort of yeah and and she's and Candice is very much the first generation of the Hollywood babies right and she talks about sort of going to Liza Minnelli's birthday party yeah Liza and Liza Minnelli's sixth birthday party yeah which sounds so, great well, she's six also and it's just like everybody's hanging out I'm like what I didn't even know that part of it right and there's, and there's this thing of like, I think now, we because we've had so many generations of 20, 20th and 21st century celebrity, we have so much language over like who or who isn't tr- like subjecting their child to fame appropriately or inappropriately. Mm-hmm. But there was no language or Bible or anything for that back then. So she just had this father who was just very happily to expose her childhood to the press, you know, who would, who would go in top hat and tails to her turtle funeral and invite the press. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and and it, what's interesting about that is that I think a lesser writer and a less interesting person would have packaged that as being like, and my father was this abusive weirdo. But she's so kind and fair yeah. towards her own father. I mean, there's something about the tone of the book, which is just, it's so pitched perfectly based on the personality of her own personality that she describes throughout, right? Uh-huh. Like from the title Knockwood, yeah. a reference to her father's uh, dummy, Charlie McCarthy. Yeah. Uh, and who also, she was raised like, like as as if this dummy, this wooden doll were was her sibling. Her sibling. Um, but so it is, you know, the Knockwood, the colloquialism of like, we knock wood for luck, but it's her really constantly coming up against like certain versions of woodenness and stiltedness whether or not it's Charlie the dummy or her own acting or her own personality her own like struggles with coming into a sense of naturalness or who she is throughout the arc of the story and so the 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 language itself is never overwrought it's very understated almost dramatically understated yeah. very, like I think that the rhetorical term for that is the litotes right it's like oh. a dramatic understatement oh we're and with a scholar <laughs> today <people. laughs> sorry everybody um, but you know uh, I gotta bring it when I'm in England since I studied British literature but uh, you know but that's that's sort of like the way like the architecture of the book is so built around that and the way her sentences are built is just very much like and then my father was dead you know like it was yeah. no like overall there's nothing perfect about the prose. She's it's, she's very, she reminds me a lot of David Sedaris actually, particularly mm. in those early chapters. This kind of sense of the bizarre and the slightly dysfunctional but fondness and love being the key emotion that's felt yeah. throughout. It's very wry. But then it's also, yeah, and so there's fondness and love, but you know, she doesn't she doesn't ever veer away from the creepy because when she's like working through her own Oedipal dilemmas with her dad, yes. like, you know, when she's a kid and she's like, I realized I was in love with my dad like all girls I was just oh like oh my Whoa. god the ease with which just Candice Bergen international sex symbol and like star and whatever just like yeah and um, I, you know it's like chapter three or something yeah. she's with her father it's this really creepy yeah. scene she's with her father and um, they're seeing birds mate or something yeah. and he said oh he kind of like oh Candice do you understand what you're looking at and yeah. she was like no but I did understand and I wanted to do it with my father it's, it's, so, it's yeah. so strange and she's such a small child that scene, yeah, um, they coo and I can't remember like, cooing and billing or cooing and billing or something like that, yeah. and uh, yeah, and and then she immediately then talks about like her Freudian like transference to horses. She became a horse girl yes. after that because she obviously couldn't continue to be obsessed with her dad when she entered <laughs> adolescence. So like you know, so she, or she decided that she'd be into horses. <laughs> 
If you can't fuck your father, you might as well ride Get a horse. <laughs> so yeah, see, it's filled with amazing stuff. But it's also like told in like it's this very direct way. It, it is that thing of like, you know when you meet someone at a party and they're like, um, they tell you the most disturbing thing you've ever heard and they go, but yeah, sure, everybody, everybody, you know, rolls their naked body up against peanut butter, right? <laughs> and you're like, not everyone. And, and the, their confidence is like, don't worry, everyone's doing it. And yeah. you're like, well, now I feel weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so it is also, it's like there's a tremendous honesty yeah. to it, right? So there, like, um, there is a kind of lack of artifice, a lack of artifice to the... To the storytelling. Which is weird because um, as you grow up with Candice over her like late teens and early 20s and she is this this miraculous beauty, this sort of, this thing that she's always made aware of from a very small child that she is an incredible beauty and she approaches all of the, she's asked to do, the minute she graduates college or she's kicked out of college and she immediately does um, a, like a movie called The Group where she is wildly accepted to be the worst actress in it mm-hmm. and all of her early film career she gets asked to do all these different parts um, and she just does them and she's perfectly aware that she, as you say, wouldn't and not not good. Yeah. And um, and she's totally available to come by that honestly of like her own. She's so deep when she's looking back on this and she's so honest and so clear headed. But then her recollections of her own self are so a one of woodenness or almost being a mannequin moving through the world, mm-hmm. you know, and constantly being a performer. Right. So that it the line between being a performer, being an actress and just being who she is is one that she spends the entire book trying to figure out or discover. Yeah. Because, you know, from the jump of when her she kills her turtle by not feeding it, and right. it's, you know, featured in the national media, <laughs> right? Uh, to, you know, like being in college and, you know, over summer break deciding to do some light modeling, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and just like deciding, just like, you know, like it, it's like some extra money, extra pin money, and then ends up, in the uh, like window of every pharmacy for this Revlon ad of her like naked clutching a leopard print pillow, yeah, and then she's just like, oh god, yeah, yeah, it's like eye rolling at the fact. And <laughs> yeah. her own mother, right, was, says, you know, so many girls would kill to be in this position. Why don't you realize what you have? And I think that it is like a journey in like self realization when you come from a place or a situation where. You don't know when to not turn it on or to perform. You don't know, you know, you know, in real life whether or not like that's really you or you're playing the part that your father, who you worship, has scripted for you. And and what's interesting is is that and she she's uh, doesn't even bother trying to cloak this in metaphor. She's very direct about it. She's like, and basically the minute her father dies or gets sick is when she starts taking an interest in her own career and in her own internal life. Mm-hmm. You know. And it's like once he's out of the picture, once that sort of emblem of perfect professionalism and the person in her life who deems whether or not anything she does is acceptable or not, who she's been underperforming for mm-hmm. as a way of never disappointing in a way. Mm-hmm. In that, that kind of that strange parental relationship you have of wanting to never set the bar high for yourself so you can always... So there will be no bar to clear or something. Yeah. And then he dies and she's like, well, now I'm a serious actress. Yeah. <laughs> and then she becomes a comedic actress, right? Which yeah. is how, how you encountered her like later, yeah. like, as you said, as kind of doing character work um, as she, you know, aged into the career and the profession. But also I think that with her father, I mean, it's it's as much also about not just withholding her excellence in some way or but but it is about the discomfort that her entire family seems to have around emotions and emotionality. Yes. So, you know, we start with her giving us a little bit of her father's biography. Mm. 
and about how basically he becomes a ventriloquist in part to find a way to express his feelings, right, or to express some personality when his actual personality seemed to be quite shy or retiring or awkward. Mm-hmm. And he had this brash puppet, right? Yeah. And, you know, and she talks about how their family never told each other that they loved each other. Yes. Yes. So it's like the words never, you know, like all the times that she wanted to see, to say, I love you to her mother. And, you know, when she was a little kid, like when her mom would be like tucking her in and she wanted to say, I love you, mom. But there was this tremendous force of withholding in the whole family that she never said it. And it's never completely explained either. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like that's the way things are. And I think it's really interesting when you talk to anybody about... I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who she told me that she's never had a meta conversation with her mother about her and her mother's relationship. And I couldn't mm-hmm. believe that. And she was like, yeah, it's like it's like asking, you know, uh, it's like, you know, it's the opposite of Eskimos having 50 words for snow. You know, we just <laughs> don't have any words for that. It, it doesn't exist in our language. And it's like that thing of... Um, everyone's relationship with their parents is so unbelievably foreign to you that I just can't wrap my head around, well, how could they not? Like, I just come from the most effusive family ever where everyone's emotions are right on the surface all the time. Um, How did you, like, so you read this quite young. How did it reflect on your familiar experience? Well, you know, the thing is, um, the thing is actually, like, I think it interested me because my I came from a family of performers and musicians. Course, and so yeah. I was and I was born into a family business of, you know, musicians. And I explore this myself in um my book uh that's also a kind of mixed biography and memoir why Karen Carpenter matters because I was named after mm. Karen Carpenter and my mother was not much it was around the same age as Candace Bergen's mother was when she had her. So I think her mom was 19 or 20. Mm. My mom was a little bit younger. She was 18 when she had me. Um but you know, like it was really kind of interesting to me to read what it was like to be a to grow up in a showbiz household from a different perspective, from a much waspier point mm, of view, certainly, mm. or like one with a kind of, uh, I guess, Nordic lack of expressives expressiveness yeah. <laughs> <laughs> versus a kind of Filipino yeah. ha- household of musicians where it's like passion is always on the surface. Sure. So so I, I think I found a lot in the book that was resonant, even if our experiences were very different. Structurally, we had very similar experiences. Yeah. Uh, but also I saw it as a kind of conduit to a world that for me felt very exotic. And that is this kind of cosmopolitan, jet-setting, you know, like Hollywood royalty life. Yeah, and going to boarding school in the Swiss Alps where you learn how to, like, mix a perfect cocktail and smoke. Exactly. (laughs) We're drinking Negronis, smoke cigarettes, uh, you know, learn enough French to get by and con people, that kind of thing. So that to me was just like, that's, you know, Uh, that that, awakened my interest in this other part of the world that wasn't really part of my experience being mostly ex- exclusively from the Pacific Rim, right, yeah, at that yeah. age. I'd only been around the Pacific uh, and in California, mm-hmm. the West Coast of the United States. Because you, you um, your family went over and back, didn't you? You kind of moved from, in and you yeah. moved back. Didn't yeah, you? exactly. So I was born in the Philippines. My mom and I first came to the U.S. to Hawaii uh, in, when I was five. Then um, And she married my stepdad. Then we went back to the Philippines when I was seven, then were there till I was 10, then came to California. So all of my movements were in this kind of tropical, Mm. uh, musical milieu. And then Candace Bergen's 
uh, candies. Candies. Yeah, it's all like, you know, transatlantic. And yes. she talks about that too. Like the other thing we shared though is that we were kids who were growing up in Southern California. Yes. So, you know, that like being Californians, how do you situate yourself in relation to this world when you're kind of growing up around Hollywood, around like a place that isn't real to most people and has no culture to, uh, you know, like these kind of long established uh, historical and cultural sites of the world? And how, you know, in what ways does our pretension lead us to the East Coast, uh, to Europe? You know, like, how do how do we finish ourselves in yes. these ways? And so, like, I very much identified with that because, uh, you know, I was such an Anglophile growing up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I, like, I was very, very far away from Britain. Sure. Um, but, you know, it was just like, oh, that so, seems so exotic to me. And it's a whole other kind of cultural system of, of manners and class and mores. Yeah. It and, seems like know? Anglophilia for um, kids growing up in the States um, is, is, is sort of the reservoir of protection kind of thing. It's like you can you hide yourself in sort of, um, I think because it's, it's such a mannered society yeah. and I think kids who are a little bit maybe awkward, I'm not saying that you were, but perhaps. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> perhaps. Absolutely. Most people coming to this room are. <laughs> um, I think this got a world that's full of like manners and protocol can yeah. be very comforting because you, you I, I remember feeling like reading Austin growing up and being like, oh, and if I could just memorize all, I've memorized all the rules of whist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as opposed to kind of like a, a 20, 20th century 21st century society where it's like no, there are no rules and yeah. it's all about a vague sense of charisma that you can't quite latch on to. Yeah, versus the kind of frontier <laughs> mentality of the US, especially yeah. the American West. And, you know, uh, yeah. And, it's some, and I guess one of the things that Candace Bergen talks about is just sort of like, um, you know, that, that it was such an unusual lifestyle that one that didn't have a particular structure really yeah. other than like or any rule book for yeah her. things were just organized around her parents like soirees with like you know people like David Niven and like uh, you know Ronald Reagan when he was still an actor that kind <laughs> yes. of thing right so and, yeah. and there was a sense early on as well where and what's great about this book as well is that there's a couple of moments where you like it'd be so easy to dislike this narrator mm. because it is the poor little rich girl story it's oh like, yeah! Oh, she's beautiful and wealthy, and everyone likes her. But oh no, she's somehow unfulfilled in a miscellaneous <laughs> kind of way. <laughs> Boo-hoo. Um But it's because she she's such good company to be with, and she's so aware of how highly unusual and specialized her life is. Like she says earlier on, she's like, "You have to." She's, she explains these incredible birthday parties where there's like fairground rides maples maples in the middle of Beverly Hills sure and like yeah and and she's like you have to understand like our parents were the people who were crafting dreams for the entire world and it was only natural for them to bring that into their homes to like have this fairy tale thing and she keeps going back to like fairy tale lore a lot Um, and she gives us a lot of context that's the thing and she also even if she describes a poor little rich girl story, like, you know, the emotional withholding that she thematizes in the book is, again, one that she stylistically executes as well. So we don't get the sense that she's boo-hooing yeah. at yeah. all. She's just describing, like, these various situations of lack or pain or what have you, but in a very just-the-facts manner almost. Yeah. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com um, I understand as well that, um, I mean, as a, as a uh, pop culture scholar, um, I'd love to know your thoughts on vaudeville generally because mm. that's in the beginning of the book she do, gives this biography of her father it's a very short biography um, of what life was in vaudeville it's not really something we've, we have over here in the same way and I understand your wife as well has an interest in ventriloquism well yeah my wife is writing a book about ventriloquism she wrote her dissertation on so was this like a first date subject you guys had? <laughs> no it's actually not at all although I did suggest that she you know she did write a great piece about this and about all the Oedipal stuff in here alongside the story of Alexander Graham Bell as well. There's some kind of overlaps there and like mm-hmm. these ventriloquial practices. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, vaudeville, like, uh, I mean, I suppose there's kind of like late 19th century music hall culture here, isn't mm-hmm. there? I yeah. mean, it's a part of like the, the, those kind of variety acts that were happening in the music halls. A very, it's a very seaside thing. Yeah. Here. I mean, I don't think we have much of a tradition of it in Ireland, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um Show bands, I think, would be the closest thing. But yeah. here, I think that sort of Brighton seaside body comic thing. Yeah. Here's like a, a dog coming out, many tiny dogs coming out of a thing, <laughs> yeah. and then a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if it was ever. I think because in America, uh, the vaudevillians they either they went into like Buster Keaton went straight into yeah, silent like, film, cinema, or theater, or radio. Like so, you yeah. know, there were a lot of major transitions, and like the vaudeville circuit, it was like it was kind of. Like the circus, insofar as you know that these there was a circuit, like shows would travel to these different towns and mm-hmm. there'd be you know a mixture of entertainments, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, a lot of the most successful performers were eventually able to adapt to like the new technologies of entertainment, yeah. like Edgar Bergen moving over to radio, right? Or or the great Sarah Bernhardt, and like you know, she began in vaudeville and then like took to the theatrical stage. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it, it's such a core aspect of how people negotiated a lot of social issues in the U.S., right? I think, um, you know, a lot of stuff dealing with race, that's where you would see blackface performance mm. on the vaudeville circuit. And there's a point, actually, where it took, I think it is Sarah Bernhardt who mm-hmm. um, never performed alongside blackface comedians and never... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, anything to do with animal acts, she wouldn't stand for as yeah. well. And it's this she was great an early activist. Yeah, exactly. It's this great one because I think we try and pretend that, like, in the last thirty years, we decided that some things were wrong. It's like no, people have always been raising their yeah. hands yeah. and saying it's this like, is mm, fucked up. This is weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So like she gives us. So she does give us the texture to this world that her father was in before. Then you know, kind of becoming this tremendously successful person in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, and and I guess that that itinerant spirit was always kind of in his soul because he was supposed to go to college and then move on to med school and become a doctor sure you know and um you know that would have pleased his his uh, mother his Swedish mother right um but 
you know, he didn't. He yeah. fell in love with puppets. Fell in love with puppets. <laughs> and, you know, playing with puppets. And there's this weird, this like strange, like very heartbreaking arc to Edgar Bergen because mm-hmm. there's this whole thing um, where and it's it's she and to talk about your own to write about your own father this way is so interesting because he's very much um, the confirmed bachelor around Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And there's lots of like. Uh, very arch tabloid things about like, oh, who is this weird man who plays with dolls? And then yeah. eventually at the age of, in his late 30s or early 40s, he marries um, Candice's 19-year-old sort of catalogue model mother the moment his own mother dies. Yeah. So very much, he's got a weird aura. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, that's one of the things actually that my wife, Sarah Sarah Kessler, um, who writes about ventriloquism, she, that, that she writes about with a lot of these ventriloquist acts is that they're always... There is a kind of aura of maybe sexual pathology or something that hangs over these performers to a certain extent. And, and, you know, especially from that era. Uh, And it's been kind of like a winking open secret thing for a long time that there was something queer about the ventriloquist, right, and carries over. Whether or not it means, you know, queer sexual practices or just like just odd. Right. Just yeah, you know, you've yeah. got like a tiny man on your lap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like tiny, and shove your hand up into his body and make yeah. him move. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> NC seventeen now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so and and yeah, that that is one of the things that like I wonder. It's also like, of course, as a reader of this, one of the things that I did want to bring up also was just like there's so many references to sexuality to like. Um, not only like her father is a confirmed bachelor and mm-hmm. what that might, you know, insinuate, but but also Candace Bergen's career arc, which was his her first movie, The Group, is where she plays the lesbian, right? Yeah. And and she talked about leading up to that, she talks about how people in Hollywood began hitting on her as soon as she was like developing, right? Yes. And that there was some lesbian who, you know, like closeted lesbian married to a man at one of her father's parties who hits on her when she's like 12 or 13. Yes. You know, right before like a man hits on her and like she, you know, that kind of thing. There's a really, um, it's very telling of, I I think this book was written in the 80s. Yeah. um, But it's very telling of like um, sexual advancements towards children, essentially, as being kind of a harmless peccadillo (laughs) as opposed to a crime. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's so much Me Too in here. There's so much. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Like, maybe that should be a good trigger warning for anybody who's tempted to read it is that at some point, too, she's, I guess, 14 or 15? Yeah, she's she's um, on, on somebody's boat, just yeah. some, some nameless movie star's boat. Yeah. And who's in his late 30s. Yeah, she strikes up like, yeah, or yeah. in late 30s or like, yeah, somewhere in his 30s. And someone who she actually idolizes. Yeah. And part of me, like, really, before I came, I wanted to do, like, research and try to sort out who There are quite was. a lot of pseudonyms in this. There's yeah. quite a lot of people being protected. But it's it. like a handsome, blonde actor who would have been in his 30s. In the in early, the 60s. early 60s. You know, um, I know. See, I feel like let's, let's let your listeners sort it out and give us some guesses. <laughs> but I was just like, who is it? And who is it that she basically then I, implies that she does she lose her virginity to him? Or at least he tries she, to yeah. um, get her to um, give herself to him. And this is just told very nonchalantly. Right. right? And this is, yeah, again, for 30 plus years before Me Too uh and that that sort of thing, and certainly before all of the attention was paid to predatory adults in the 1980s. Yeah, and and there and there is 
No real, I guess because she doesn't, she's very uh, an unjudgmental writer. She just, in what makes, in what makes her a good writer really is that she, and what separates this from like a, a standard issue gossipy memoir in that she's not a gossipy person. She just takes people as they come and she describes this 36 year old man who basically tells her, um, do you want to see me again? Uh, don't tell your parents. Here's my phone number. I'll come pick you up. They go for a drive. He sexually assaults her, and and at no point is she like. And he was a monster. She just sort of like, yeah. And you know what? This is what it's like to be a very beautiful blonde preteen. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just my lot in life. Some people, you know, yeah. <laughs> some people are stopped and searched. Yeah. I am abused constantly and <laughs> yeah. constantly sexualized from like the, yeah. yeah um, the, the moment that basically, I guess, from 10 up, right? But weirdly, there's... Um, and she does describe various affairs that she has with people in the book. And um, she talks about her marriage towards the end. But she never talks about sexual desire herself. Mm. She's very divorced from that part of herself, at least as a writer. Yeah. And she talks about... Because she she's, says very nonchalantly as well, like, by the time I was 25, I'd done 10 rape scenes. Yeah. <laughs> and all her acting... Yeah. And so she... You know, because she wanted... Because she was... D- basically trying to disidentify with her Hollywood upbringing Mm -hmm. and just sort of, you know, try to distance herself from that once, you know, she moved to the East Coast, once she started to go to college at an Ivy League school and and once she started to consort with various European members of the European aristocracies, Mm -hmm. right, you know, she realized, oh, uh, the crassness of my life and being in entertainment and being from an entertainment yeah. family is something that she wanted to like compensate for. So she agreed to do all sorts of like wacky art cinema or like mm-hmm. these independent films. So the group she thought was going to be some small, low budget film, right? Or like a, a just kind of smaller film at least. And then it kind of ended up blowing up, right? So her yeah. film debut was something she thought would be much smaller, but then of course got tremendous attention. And then she, but then she would just like say yes to these quick little shoots with like Just so she could go to directors. Greece for a month. Yeah, it's like, know? I just wanted to go to Greece for a month. Like, <laughs> and then she says hello, to, uh, sorry, hello. She says yes and hello to The Sand Pebbles with Steve McQueen, um, which is a bigger budget film, but like because she she thinks, you know, I'm going to travel and ta- I'm going to be in Taiwan for a few months and mm-hmm. then I'm going to just pop all over Asia. Mm-hmm. So she talks about entering. No sense of professionalism. Yeah. <laughs> she just like she enters acting basically to travel, to yeah. earn money. And like, you know, it's, it's she doesn't have this romanticized relationship to acting at all. Yeah. And said so it's just like, yeah, I wanted I still wanted to be a fo- photojournalist. I had all these pretensions about like what. I was yes. going to do, and but I do you know I happen to be good looking, and like they, they, oh, she, she, this running joke that she makes was like they wanted Julie Christie, but <laughs> but she was unavailable, right? So like that she was the ersatz Julie Christie, yeah, you know? and, and and never lets her um, self confidence or self esteem get caught up in that because again has been brought up in this business and is aware of the shallowness of it and how yeah, yeah. and like there's this is a, a recurring jokes about Jane Fonda as well uh-huh. about because she she basically puts herself in. Competition of being like the activist actress, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and she's like, they wanted to take Jane Fonda to China, but my application was far more impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Like, this, she's sort of like she never takes herself too seriously. Uh, I mean, which is is a weird thing to say when someone's written a whole book about themselves, right? But you know, but it is really kind of this. It's it's this interesting, slightly distant self analysis. Yeah, it's it's fantastic, and what where that becomes particularly resonant as well, and I think this is why my favorite um, Hollywood memoirs are ones of people who are, even though she's very much an insider, not like the big name ones, the you know, 
if if Marilyn Monroe had something or Elizabeth Taylor's memoirs mm-hmm. or whatever, there's there's so they have so much to lose yeah. that they don't. It feels fake and it feels like a complete wall is between them and the reader. But because she's living in a more granular way in Hollywood, because she's from there, mm-hmm. she's a- allowed to be in the background of so many different things, and particularly her role in the '60s and in the free yeah. love movement and within with Terry Melcher yeah. and and sort of in the background of the Charles Manson thing. And can, yeah, can you actually for our UK listeners who maybe not know who Terry Melcher is, could you talk a little about that? Well, so he's a very famous music producer who worked a lot with the Beach Boys, um, but he came to notoriety and I guess like uh, national and international name recognition, mm. uh, not just for his record producing, but because he was embroiled with the Manson family. Um, he'd visit, um, I think it was Dennis Wilson who uh, of the Beach Boys who loved going up to the ranch and visiting Charlie and the girls at the ranch. Yeah, and, and, and it being a cool idea. Yeah. And like, that yeah. being like... Cool. It was like, it just felt like a cool free love commune that they'd yeah. go hang out and visit and, you know, maybe fool around with some people and that kind of thing. Sure. But because he was a big music producer, Charles Manson, who himself was an aspiring musician, uh, really wanted him to produce his records and in fact the Peach Boys recorded a song written by Mm. Charlie Manson right so anyway so uh, Charles Manson like harangued Terry Melcher you know to like well like here's my demo who at that point was living with Candies they were still together and they were living in this house on the hill that she describes Mm -hmm. Um, and we learn eventually that you know like whatever Terry Melcher's like later Charlie <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, whatever. Bored, you're, not, bored now. you're not good enough to be, you know, musician. Yeah. It's fun hanging out with you on the ranch, but whatever. Manson vows revenge in various ways. You know, their relationship, Candace's and Terry's, starts to shift, and there's some a shift in fortunes in Terry's life. So they move to Malibu, to the beach, away from the kind of hills. I think that they're in Beverly Hills or Brentwood mm-hmm. or something like that. And um, it is shortly after they move that uh, Sharon Tate. Uh, and I guess Polanski moved into that house that they lived in, mm-hmm. and uh, Sharon Tate is murdered by the Manson family. And the belief is, is that what Manson was originally going for Melcher? Oh yeah, he's absolutely going for Melcher. So, so the belief, the belief is well, like all you know, kind of accounts of it is that uh, you know he was really pissed off about the no record deal from Melcher. And mm-hmm. he was like, I'm going to show him something. And it turns out he was gone. But like, you know, he assigned the uh, Manson family members to go there. And um, at that point, he was just like, you know, fuck it. Let's like just kill whoever's there. Yeah. You know. And and what's so, I mean, everything. Ingenue ab- actress, right? Everything about it is so chilling. And it's it's still chilling yeah. um, all these years later. But the fact that Sharon Tate is kind of this doppelganger yeah. of Bergen, like she's this blonde actress, beautiful who's blonde of, ingenue, yeah, not terribly talented, but sort of having a good time in movies, like with an older guy, mm-hmm. you know. And it's amazing how much it doesn't come up in the book. Do you know yeah. what I mean? She like, well, she does say that in one of her fights with Terry Melcher, as they're sort of their relationship is breaking apart, you know, one of the things that he doesn't acknowledges like it could have been her yeah. she's like that that could have been me that, and was know, supposed to have been supposed her supposed to have been me or like you know it very well could have been me and then they, she kind of moves on after, yeah like, that's it. That. she's yeah. like done with it she's, she's like, like okay now now on to some other things it's yeah. super super Swedish like, yeah <laughs> yeah that's a thing it's like yeah. yeah that's that's sort of like um 
so many other cultural backgrounds would have been like, and that's the defining tale of my life. Yeah. <laughs> like if it were yeah. me. <laughs> the kind of mist, the near mist, yeah. right? But, uh, but I mean, it's also like knock wood again, meaning like to knock wood for luck. It's it's one yeah. of those situations where it's just game. lucky. Yeah. You know, like it's like it's like the kind of thing that you knock wood about and it's just like you're protected from the evil and, and spirits. It, and there is kind of this like it's almost like a fairy tale in the sense that you get the sense that Candice has just been blessed by a fairy from the day she was born and a golden glow surrounds her <laughs> and nothing truly bad can ever happen to her. Nothing truly bad, but her capacity to feel truly good is also lacking. That's so, yeah, it's quite muted. Like mm-hmm. th- throughout the whole thing, it's like, you know, she mixes with these incredible people. She gets these incredible honors. She's asked to do wonderful things. And it doesn't, it never, it kind of bounces off the surface of her skin a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that you start to notice. And it's also like she's also out of time in the same way that her dad is a relic from this entertainment of the past, right? Yes. That that when the 60s are happening, and even as she's involved with Terry Melcher, who was actually her first sweetheart ever, like high school sweetheart, right? Yeah, and they get and back they together. get back together, uh, when, you know, they're in their, I guess, 20s at the time. Um, but... You know, they're hanging out with all of these musicians from the Laurel Canyon scene, like the Mamas and the Papas, like the Doors, Jimi Hendrix. You Which know. she hates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which so hilariously, she despises she, everything about hippies. Yeah, but she, but yet she's surrounded. So, like, she describes herself surrounded by people having this transformative countercultural moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being at the center of it with, you know, like at the hotbed of like, you know, uh, all this musical uh, activity. And she's there in her slightly too expensive Gucci, Gucci loafers. Gucci loafers or some silk pajamas from some other designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and secretly judging, but also feeling left out, out of time, not within the flow of everything. Yeah, because despite being a young, beautiful woman who's at the forefront of culture and in these cool films, she feels, like, even to herself, like the establishment. Yeah. she is the establishment. She totally is. Yeah, because it's like there's no denying it. And that is the honesty about it, too, where I think that there's so many people who'd be tempted to write themselves into that 60s story in a way that would lionize what, uh, you know, free-thinking, free-loving, activist they were and instead she's very honest about her skepticism at the same time also like the ways in which yeah she was the man right there's this fabulous part where she's um, so she has this um, very serious boyfriend who she called Robin Mm -hmm. I don't know if you figured out who he is uh, no, I actually don't know. I mean, like, that's the thing is, like, when I re- read this as a young person, mm. I didn't have the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so that would have meant I'd actually have to go to a library to sort it sure. out. Sure, yeah, I'm sure somebody can And I haven't us. tried it. Yeah, I'm sure somebody will tell yeah, but us. But he's a, he's, a, he's a film producer, um, and you get the sense that he's in that kind of new cinema, easy writer, Jack mm-hmm. Nicholson, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, they have a, they're next door neighbors, and they end up um, in this relationship for several years, and he's a little bit older, and he's been married. And um, he is super into the free love movement. He's cute. It's like really revealing of the misogyny of free love and the oh, absolute yeah. hypocrisy of it because he's constantly pushing her for a sort of polyamory situation, but then going crazy if she gets home past 1 a.m. Yeah. You know, so it's like absolutely. And he can't even see his own hypocrisy. Um, but um, he sort of criticizes her for not being involved enough in um, the countercultural movement. And he says, oh, Candy, you know, um, 
when the revolution happens, you'll be inside, like wrapped in your furs kind of thing or something like that. And she was like, yeah, but at least I'll feel bad about it. You'll show up in your Ferrari and then drive away. Yeah. <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll think that you've done your bit. Whereas yeah. like, at least I have the sort of <laughs> the wherewithal to feel guilt about my position. Whereas you're in total denial yeah. of how much of the man you are. You know? Yeah, I think. And that's I think that one thing that she... Uh, where she comes out on top is in the contrast that she strikes between a lot of the people she's surrounded with in Hollywood of her generation or people kind of aspiring to that, um, mm. you know, the kind of liberal countercultural, uh, you know, status in some way. And is that that she's just she's very cynical. Right. Yeah. And so and their idealism is you know, exposed as being somewhat foolish and hypocritical because it's like, you know, like there's also another scene where she and Terry Melcher, I guess, like, you know, go donate turkeys to the, like, you know, people without homes and like, the you know, in Skid Row in Los Angeles. And then she's like, yeah, it made me feel terrible. But then we drove back to... <laughs> to our castle. <laughs> to our castle, <laughs> yeah. basically, in our Mercedes, you know, and that was that. And there's even a, a bit where she talks about... Um I think Martin Luther King is assassinated and she's yeah. like, and our housekeeper cried all day. Yeah, cried all day. Our housekeeper <laughs> yeah. cried all day and like murmured gospel music under her breath with a radio on softly. Yeah. You know, it's a real picture of what it was like in, you know, 1968, like, you know, America in a conservative household. I mean, her father performed at the Republican National Convention. Yes. And, like all these different events. Yeah. It's talked about early on in the novel that her father is constantly in the shadow of this puppet and nobody is really interested in talking to him unless he brings his puppet along mm-hmm. and the kind of bittersweetness of that. And then that is immediately, um, as soon as his star starts to fade and his, it's very A Star is Born and his daughter's star uh, rises. Yeah, that's it's the like, second half of the book, basically. Yeah, it's right? like, oh, you're Candice's father. Yeah. You know, and how he deals with that. And it's kind of this thing of like, he's an old man and he's going on like the Muppet show and like all these things and he's doing his old routine and like... He hasn't changed it one bit. Not, not even slightly. <laughs> not since the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. the teens. Yeah. And um, and this thing of like, they're all just so pleased for him. Um, but it's, you know, it's getting the thing, that slow decline of a parent that is so much a part of being a human. But he gets to have this beautiful farewell thing. And it's mm-hmm. very cinematic where he's called to do like one last big show. A with farewell him and tour. Charlie. A yeah. farewell tour in Las Vegas, I think. Yeah. And he does sort of two shows and they go wonderfully and everyone's very respectful and then he quickly dies afterwards. Yeah. And this sense of like, oh, we've come, we've we've played a whole game of Jumanji. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, exit, you know, yeah. and it's just like he's, yeah, he dies peacefully in his sleep. Right. And the thing is that, you know, Charlie McCarthy, the Charlie McCarthy puppet, if, if. So would that be something that you were aware of growing up at all? I mean, I know you kind of came on the Muppet Show a little bit in the last in the late eighties. He a, a, arrived a few times, but um, yeah. or appeared a few times. Uh, did you know what Johnny McCarthy was? I didn't. I didn't really. I mean, I remember seeing him in the Muppet movie and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, and I remember that my dad would tell me who Charlie McCarthy was, and having grown up with Charlie McCarthy, like I think that our People my age, I'm, I'm in my 40s, like our parents would say, oh, I remember Charlie McCarthy at your Bergen, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, for you know, we didn't really know. But it was a thing that our parents were into. I mean, and, and so, but I was aware of Candace Bergen because, you know, she came to fame like shortly before I was born, right, mm-hmm. in the 70s. And, and she was kind of at her height at the time, like kind of a well-known international actress at that point. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing with Charlie McCarthy is that, you know, although there were movies, I wanted, do want to say that there were movies in the 70s, like Magic, or was like maybe that was the early 80s, like about mm. evil ventriloquist dolls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so that that's sort of, uh, again, the stuff that my work, uh, wife Sarah works on, but like, you know, um, so there was a kind of reinvigorated interest, and maybe because, you know, it was the era of Muppets and Sesame yeah. Street and the whole thing, and so we're getting used to, like, all of these, you know, not quite human creatures. Yes, you know, that's like in, into Furby. Yeah, <laughs> to the inanimate. So we've talked an enormous lot about candies. I want to talk a little bit about Karen. Of course. And why Karen matters. <laughs> I've split myself in two in the book. <laughs> yeah. This kidding. is your horcrux. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so um, I'd love to know, I mean... This is your first. Um, have you have you written as a as a scholar academically? Yeah, this is your so first my consumer facing. This book. is my first consumer facing book. I like right. that. It's both <laughs> public facing. It's like so like the other stuff it's was like, like academic like people facing away from this like yeah, those were, those tower. <laughs> those were B two B books. This yeah, is B2C. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so this is this is my first book really written for a general audience, and uh, and it was you know again it's sort of. In much the same way that I think that it was overdetermined for Candace Bergen to write about Charlie McCarthy, mm-hmm. uh, it was overdetermined for me to write about Karen Carpenter, because you know when, once you're named after someone, they bloom really large in your life, and it seems like their fortunes, as separate as they may seem from yours, always feel spiritually intertwined yes. in a way. I always put that way about Princess Caroline of Monaco. Oh, is that who you were named after? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, they always change the story. Sometimes they say Neil Diamond. Sometimes they say Caroline Kennedy. But I just feel, I think they kind of forgot because I was number four. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> just every now but and then. It's like the, those, those different Carolines in the ether. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's not as many famous Karens, though. <laughs> there isn't. Yeah, so. Um, we need a Queen Karen. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hilarious, though, because it's like now in the U.S., Karen has become a kind of shorthand for like, um, like I don't know, like Becky. It's like another Becky. I see, yes, I, I think there is like, a drag queen called Karen from Finance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, Karen from Finance. Don't put raisins in the potato That's... salad. You know, like that kind of thing, right? So, so it's so funny. And this, the book itself also explores, you know, what it's like, uh, whiteness and my relationship to my own, mm. you know. Um, like migrations and immigration and how the carpenters were so emblematic of like a particular kind of, you know, white square America. Yes, and uh, about how they were, uh, there's this great line early in the book that you say, and I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really enjoying it, um, where you say that uh, everybody in the 70s was pretending to be something else. Yeah. Like rich kids pretending to be poor kids, poor kids pretending to be rich kids, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the the carpenters were resolutely themselves. They were just nice kids from the suburbs singing about being in love in a very, I mean, they are the... Singing about being suburban. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. they're the quintessence of sentimental garbage. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I talk a lot, yeah, this is, you know, apropos the the, the kind of framework for the show, uh, it's, it's... Tears and schmaltz, right? I mean, it's like the, the, I talk a lot about the the concept of corniness. You know, yeah. things are corny. Well, what does corniness mean? Do you think mockishly old fashioned? Um, I mean, but the, the, but what I say in the book is that it's a term that isn't used 
um, as much in contemporary parlance in the U.S. Yeah. But in the Philippines, it's just a word that everybody still uses. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's really corny, you know, like corny talaga or something, you know, like. So, um, and it is another th- way of saying cheesy or schmaltzy or sentimental. I mean, so it is a kind of, um, it's it's being out of time, mm. out of step with something, um, not unlike maybe, you know, uh, Edward Bergen, Edgar Bergen. Ventriloquism in the exactly, 20th century. Exactly, ventriloquism in the 20th century, you know, that, those sorts of things. like, um, uh, And being kind of attached to old-fashioned ideas or ways or themes um, and sentimentally attached to them. Yeah, and so I'm really curious about, because th- it is a part memoir and part biography of, mm-hmm. of Karen Carpenter. The, the two Karens are explored yeah. uh, wonderfully in this. And um, I would love to know what's the experience of writing... Um, Writing your own story through the lens of another person's, is that freeing or is it like giving yourself that, um, those rules mm. that I write about myself in the context of Karen Carpenter? Yeah. Um, do you find a lot of freedom within that? Is it put like barriers? Because you write, write about my whole life story. It's like, oh, where to begin? Where to yeah. start? Um, I'm gay. I'm Filipino. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I know. There's so, there's so many places to start. But I, yeah, the constraint of doing this. Um, and, and, and writing my own story intertwined or kind of as interludes between um, aspects of Karen Carpenter's biography, I think really helped me to, yeah, stay focused and centered on certain relevant and resonant details from my own life that could illuminate something about hers or vice mm. versa, right? So like those, so I focused on moments where, and, and, and details, stories that could, uh, you know, demonstrate how these, again, two figures who are very different from one another at various moments actually really resonated with one another. You know, yeah. were really very similar. And so so to me, like, it's, it's a practice round because there are many more stories I have to tell about, you know, my own family and their uh, movements around the world, but also, like, you know, their life and struggles as musicians and about, you know, whatever, what the kind of sexual milieu was around my uh, family and household. Mm. And that, you know, um, I think, I wouldn't say contributed to my queerness, but certainly contributed to my understanding of my own queerness. Mm. Uh, and But I couldn't do all that in the realm of care. Also, I didn't want to rewrite Karen Carpenter's biography because there are also already excellent biographies out there. Mm. So instead, I wanted to kind of take the occasion to see what in her story and in my story could allow us to think more about certain key themes, certain ideas that are fascinating to me as a thinker and as a cultural critic. All right, Karen, I've loved having you in. Thank you so much. It's so nice to like meet you in person. <laughs> Speaking of like, you know, dummies and puppets and avatars <laughs> and these things, we only know each other online. Yeah. But it's so lovely to get to actually have a conversation in oh, the flesh. It's been fabulous. I've been tagging yeah. you a lot on Twitter and I feel like I really need to like take a step back. Oh no, no. I love it. I love it. I'm more than happy to be tagged on Twitter. <laughs> so there are our hundreds of hours of pop rocket content for yes. your, your um former podcast yes. um, available. But you also have a 
new podcast coming out with Winter Mitchell. Yes, we do. Um, so Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh, and I, I sometimes lop off the Rohrbaugh. She's a married lady now, so I'll add it. <laughs> but uh, Winter Mitchell Rohrbaugh and I have a new podcast. It's called Waiting to Exhale. Uh, and it's a Generation X-themed podcast oh, on I just pop got culture it. and social <laughs> issues. Yeah, so, but it's, it's, it's about Gen X issues, but from a kind of woman of color, queer woman of color perspective. So kind of different take. It, it's at once going to be educational for people who aren't a part of Generation X and kind yes. of revisiting things that uh, and cultural texts that they're interested in from the past. And also we go through some of the contemporary lingo that younger generations are using and try to educate our listeners about what those things mean. Oh, wow. So like, You're what is Fortnite? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, what is flossing? It doesn't have anything to do with teeth, right? Like, so it's like so it's a way for everybody to kind of connect. Anyway, that I can't gives you wait to listen for to it. This. Yeah, um, you can find a preview for it on our Patreon, and uh, we'll be widely releasing the, uh, that first episode and newer episodes when I'm back from my book tour in July. Fabulous, Karen! Thanks so much again. Thank you, Caroline. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.